who is Jesus? Think for a moment, if you will, about how you would answer that question. Who is he? Think about the significance of that question and the significance of your answer. We could argue that it's the most important question that we will ever be asked and ever answer. This is the very question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16. He asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered, well, prophet, John the Baptist, Elijah. And then he turns the question on them and he says, who do you say that I am? Well, I, I spent some time looking at how people have answered this question. Mostly it was just like YouTube clips, people on the street can get some pretty interesting responses. Um, but it's kind of raw and real. Some of them said they believed that He is God. He is the Savior. He died for our sins. Others said that perhaps He was a good dude who, who's largely just been misunderstood by everyone, except for them, of course. Some people said that He was probably a real person, and He, he seemed to have a better understanding of life than, than most others, but they wouldn't necessarily say more than that. Others doubted that he existed at all, and one guy said that he thought Bill Clinton was Jesus reincarnated. But what do you say? What do we say? Who is Jesus? Well, I want to consider this question um, together this morning, and we'll do so from the Gospel of John will be in the 10th chapter, looking at verses 11 to 21 primarily. And the title of our sermon is The Shepherd and the Sheep, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are Shepherd, Lord, and Life. Before I read the text, I do want to make a couple of comments about where, where it takes place in the Gospel. In John 10, Jesus' ministry is nearing its end. In chapter 11, he will raise Lazarus from the dead, which will force him to withdraw from public life as the Pharisees grow more and more intolerant of him, and they, they want to kill him and Lazarus, oddly enough. By chapter 13, Jesus will have his last meal with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. So here in, Jesus, in chapter 10, sorry, Jesus confronts the Pharisees for their lack of spiritual insight concerning his identity. You see, in John 9, Jesus had healed a man that was blind. And the Pharisees saw it really as nothing more than an opportunity to out Jesus as a fraud. They, they came to the blind man and they asked him how he received his sight. And he said, well, this man, Jesus, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. And there's a division among the Pharisees regarding this. And, and so they, they asked the blind man himself, well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said he's a prophet. Well, they, they, asked, they bother his parents with some questions, and they come back, and they ask him a few more questions, and they don't really like his answer. And so they, 
they cast him out. And so at the end of John 9, Jesus condemns them, these religious leaders. He says, uh, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Well, some of the Pharisees, they heard these things, and they asked him, are we also blind? He replied, if you were blind, you would have no guilt But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And he goes right then from there into the discourse that is recorded for us in chapter 10. So let's read that now. I'm going to read the whole, uh, the first 21 verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So before we look at verses 11 through 21, I'm going to make a couple sort of summarizing comments about the verses that precede that. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus contrasts the false shepherds with the true shepherd in his typical parabolic fashion. And the surrounding crowds just aren't able to keep up. So he elaborates in verses 7 through 18. 
Now, the relationship between verses 1 to 5 and 7 to 18 may be a bit confusing upon first glance. If we try to read verses 7 to 18 as a straightforward expansion of a single narrative parable in verses 1 to 5, we can get lost quickly. For instance, in verses 1 to 5, the shepherd enters the fold by the gate. In the explanation, Jesus is not simply the shepherd who goes through the gate, but he is the gate and the shepherd. He introduces hired hands in verses 7 through 18, not just robbers and thieves. The shepherd leads them out of the gate in verses 1 to 5. He leads them in and out in verses 7 through 18. So we need to be careful, it seems, not to view verses 1 to 5 simply as a, just a cohesive parable in verses 7 through 18 as a mere explanation of them. Rather, verses 7 through 18 serve as an expansion of the dominant themes contained in these first five verses. The concept of the gate, shepherd, and then the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. So we're really just going to look at two of these this morning. First, we're going to see Jesus' unique identity and ultimate authority as the good shepherd. And second, we will see the diverse identity and the guaranteed safety of his flock. And then we'll conclude with a few practical lessons to be learned from this passage. So first, in verses 11 through 13, we see Jesus' unique identity and his ultimate authority as the shepherd. If we're going to understand this language of sheep and shepherds, we're going to know what Jesus means in verse 11 when he says, I am the good shepherd. We need, to, we need to realize that there's some very significant Old Testament background against which he is speaking here. There are many shepherd references throughout all of the Old Testament. The most important for this passage is probably Ezekiel 34. The gist of which God is berating the shepherds of Israel, that is the false teachers and prophets. He's berating them for feeding themselves and neglecting and abusing the sheep, that is the people of Israel. And in Ezekiel 34, God says that in light of their failure to care for his flock, God himself will be the shepherd of the sheep. He says in Ezekiel 34, 23, he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And so if this is the most relevant background to Jesus' words here in John 10, then he's not simply contrasting himself with the religious leaders of Israel of his day or even any day um, prior to him. These leaders who have used and abused the people of God for their own gain. Instead of leading, guiding, and nurturing them. He's not just contrasting himself with them, but he is claiming to be this royal, divine, Davidic shepherd, whom in Ezekiel 34, verse 24, God says will be prince over all his people. He is, though, contrasting himself with the pretenders and abusers who have come before him. So he says that he is the good shepherd. 
Now, the phrase good shepherd likely comes off as a strange choice of metaphor to the Western ear. D.A. Carson writes, Many people in the industrialized West are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings, perhaps somewhat effeminate, with their arms full of cuddly lambs. And the English adjective good does nothing to dissuade us from these misconceptions. But in reality, the shepherd's job was tiring, manly, and sometimes dangerous. And, and the Greek word that's translated as good can very well denote something of nobility or worth. And so it, it may be more helpful to think of Jesus saying that he is the noble or the worthy shepherd. And this is, again, in contrast, not only with the thieves and robbers of verse 7, but also the hired hand in verse 12. The hired hand, while not malicious, not ill intent, he still cares more for himself than his sheep, because they aren't his. I don't think it's necessary in the end to determine precisely who each of these metaphors describes. Who's the hired hand versus robbers and thieves? We need names. No, I, I think the point that Jesus is making is that he alone is the good shepherd. All others who came before him and any who come after him are robbers and thieves at worst, hired hands at best. In the end, only Jesus is worthy of the title Good Shepherd. He is the noble shepherd. Now, concerning himself as shepherd, Jesus says two things that I want to highlight for us here. One, in verses 14 to 15, he says that he is uniquely known by his sheep and he uniquely knows them. And second, in verses 17 and 18, he says that he has the authority to lay down his life for his sheep that he might take it up again. Let's consider each of these in turn. In verses 14 to 15, we see the personal and intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. Here Jesus reiterates what he's already said in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd again. And this repetition should alert us that something important is coming. He says, I know my own, and my own know me. The shepherd, in contrast with the robber, and even the hired hand, has a personal relationship with his flock. Notice back in verse 3, he says, The sheep know his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. There is an intimate and personal relationship here. What we learn from this is there is an experiential nature to the Christian religion. Consider this with me. Do you know Jesus? Ask yourself and answer honestly. Do I know him? Does he know me? Jesus says that he knows his flock and his flock know him. He says that the sheep hear his voice, recognize his voice, and follow his voice. This is happening right now in our midst this morning as we look to God's word. 
Whenever we read God's Word or we hear it read, we hear it preached, we are hearing the voice of Jesus. Right now, this morning, Jesus is speaking to us through His Word. Do you recognize His voice? And when you recognize it, do you follow Him? Do you do what He says or do you go your own way? Not only do the sheep recognize the voice of Jesus and follow Him, but there is an unparalleled intimacy between them. There is an intimacy and closeness between the shepherd and his sheep unlike anything else in the world. In verse 15, Jesus compares his own relationship with the Father to his relationship with his people. He says, just as the Father and the Son know one another, so too the sheep and the shepherd know one another. This is astounding. Think of it. For Jesus to explain adequately what it's like for the sheep and the shepherd to know one another, he chooses this illustration. It's like how the Trinity knows itself. It's this unparalleled intimacy, knowing and being fully known between the sheep and the shepherd. Well, also, the the good shepherd not only knows his sheep and is known by them, but he lays down his life for them. Jesus mentions this several times in this passage. He says it in verse 11, verse 15, and then he he sort of unpacks it, at not exactly at length, but he makes a few more comments about it in verses 17 to 18. And so... um, We'll see in these two verses a little more detail. And I want to, from verses 17 and 18, consider three aspects of the shepherd's death for his sheep. We'll see its centrality to his life. We'll see his authority to die and to rise again. And we will see the efficacy of his death for his sheep. So first, the centrality. In contrast to the thieves and robbers and wolves who only come to kill, kill, destroy, steal, and devour, and the hired hand who turns and runs when the work gets tough and dangerous, the good shepherd willingly risks his life for the sheep. Jesus, however, is not only willing to lay his life down for the sheep, but he actually does so. More than that, it is his intention to do so all along. His death is not incidental to his life and ministry. The cross is front and center in Jesus' identity. We get a glimpse of this in verse 17. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Now, I must admit, there is a bit of mystery in this statement for me. And we don't, we're not able to unpack the statement in its entirety here, but there are a few important 
thoughts I think we can hold in our minds as we consider it. One, Jesus is not saying here that the Father withholds his love from him until he dies on the cross. Jesus makes plain in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that he has eternally shared the love and glory of the Father. What we can say about this is that the love of the Father is eternally bound with the Son's obedience, and the Son's obedience is eternally bound with the Father's love. And I think to contrast it with perhaps even we can, how God loves us, you know, God loves us despite of who we are. He loves the Son because of who He is. The death of Christ, his obedience to the Father's will, is not an afterthought. Unlike the shepherd who who is willing to risk his life, Jesus came to lay down his life. God loves Christ because of his willingness to lay down his life for his sheep. So his death is central, but his death is not disconnected from his resurrection. That brings us then to the authority of the shepherd to lay down his life and to take it up again. The cross is not a peripheral entity in the life of Jesus. J.C. Ryle comments, Our Lord, by mentioning his resurrection, seems to remind his hearers that in one respect he was different from the best of shepherds. They might lay down their lives, but then there would be an end of them. He meant to lay down his life, but after that to take it again. He would not only die for his people, but also rise again. You see the good shepherd in the metaphor, while willing to lay his life down the sheep, realizes that in so doing, he will leave them left without protection, and they will be vulnerable to further attacks. Jesus, in contrast to the best of shepherds, lays down his life, but it does not remain down. The good shepherd lays down his life in order that he may take it up again. Jesus says he has authority to lay down his life, and he has authority to take it up. No one is able to take it from him. Neither is anyone able to prevent him from taking it back up once he has willingly laid it down. And it was willingly laid down. Jesus willingly, voluntarily laid down his life. He was able to prevent his own pain and suffering, and yet in obedience to God chose not to in order to save the life of his flock. How loved are you, Christian, that Christ would lay down his life for you? The good shepherd laid down his life for you. And this authority to lay down his life to take it up again. He says in verse 18, this charge I have received from my Father. There's a great unity between Father and Son here. Well, thirdly, we see the efficacy of the shepherd's death. Why is the death of the shepherd beneficial to the sheep? We might say, some might say, that perhaps the good shepherd dies as an example to his sheep. The sheep, sorry, the shepherd confronts the lion or the bear 
in order to display his love for the flock. And so as the life is beaten out of him and the light fades from his eyes, he says, See how much I love you. I don't think this adequately explains how the shepherd's death actually benefits the flock. Rather than seeing the shepherd's death as a mere expression of love, we need to see it as substitution. The shepherd lays his life down in the place of the flock. He sees the flock in mortal danger, and so he loses his life in defense of the sheep. And by his death, they are saved. He dies so that the flock doesn't have to die. And Upholding this interpretation is the fact that the preposition for, where he says, I lay my life down for the sheep, that preposition in this gospel always occurs in a sacrificial context. Anytime Jesus mentions his death and him dying for his people, John 6, John 10, John 11, 17, 18, sacrificial. When Jesus in John 13 tells Jesus, that I'll go to jail for you, I'll die for you. Or when Jesus says that you know, no greater love has anyone than this, that a man die for his friend. Sacrifice, not mere example. But this is one of the most common ways that the death of Christ is, is explained. That Jesus dies simply to show us how much he loves us and to encourage us to love others in the same manner. While Jesus' death is not less than a perfect example of love, we must not think it is only an example of love. Our sins have alienated us from God and warrant the wrath and fury of God. Jesus bore the wrath of God for sinners. He laid his life down as a sacrifice for his flock. This, my friends, is the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. Sinners like you and me. So that we might have eternal life. Have you trusted in him? Have you followed after the good shepherd? I pray that you will. I commend him to you. With all of my heart. Well, let's turn then finally to verse 16. We sort of skipped over it, and I I want to look lastly before we close at the identity of the flock. We've seen the shepherd, we've seen his unique identity, his, his intimacy with his flock, we've seen his authority. But who are the sheep? For whom does the shepherd die? Who is it that he intimately knows as he knows the Father? Most simply, those who hear his voice. And there are those who hear his voice from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, And I have sheep that are not of this fold. Them I must bring also. As we 
As we begin wrapping up and we look at this verse, there are just two things I want to note. I want to encourage you, if you are one of his sheep, remember you will never be lost. And second, I want to motivate us further to continue to work to be a part of bringing in the rest of these sheep. Notice what Jesus says here. He says three things that help me to see this first point about our security. He says first that he has other sheep not of this fold, the fold of Israel. So then he has sheep in other folds. And secondly, he says he must bring them in. Thirdly, he says they will listen to his voice. So to unpack that, there are those outside sheep, that is Gentiles, that belong to him. They are his. Verse 27 says that they have been given to him by his father. He owns them. And then he says, secondly, he must, he will, he shall bring them in to his flock. There is no failing with Jesus. He will do what he has set out to accomplish. And these sheep whom he goes to get will listen to his voice. There is no maybe here. Those who are his, he will bring them in and they will listen to his voice. So if you are one of his, you have been brought in or you will be brought in, you will not be lost. How do you know if you are one of his? Do you pry into the eternal decrees? You listen. And if, when Jesus speaks, you hear the voice of God, you are his. This isn't an audible voice, but one that must be heard with spiritual ears. In verse 26, Jesus says that those who do not believe are not part of his flock. And so they don't recognize his voice. Do you recognize his voice? Do you believe? Right now, Jesus is speaking in and through his word. Are you hearing him? Are you believing? Are you trusting him? If not, I pray that you would. Don't wait another moment. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus. Flee to the good shepherd. But if you are here, and you are hearing, you are trusting, you are believing, you are coming to Jesus, you are one of His. You will never be lost. What about those in the world who remain to be brought in? Well, this verse here in John 10 should give us confidence that God's work in the world can never fail. And so we can and should be a part of it. Consider a brief example with me. After two failed attempts at being sent out as a missionary to Africa because of repeated bouts of malaria and the death of his brother, Peter Cameron Scott stood at the grave of the explorer missionary David Livingstone. And there on the gravestone in Westminster Abbey, were the following words from this verse. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, 
them also I must bring. God used these words right then and there to reignite Peter Cameron Scott's passion and longing to see sons and daughters brought in from Africa. And he returned, and he never came home the rest of his life. And the fruit of his life still exists today in the form of the African Inland Mission. What might God be doing in our midst right now because of this verse? I can't do anything. But perhaps these words, through the power of God's Spirit, may stir something in your heart this morning. Perhaps some of us will look back on this day, this moment, this message, as the day that God called us to go to go into parts of the world where there is currently no evangelical witness. People are being born, living, and dying, never hearing the name of Christ even once, all over the world. The field is white for harvest, but the laborers are few. What might God be pleased to do? Well, as we close now, there are three things I want to, want to mention, lessons to, to be learned from this text. And we'll hit them in reverse order from how they would have been covered in the text. First, will you join me in praying that God will raise up missionaries from our midst who are willing and able to take the gospel to places in the world where it is, previ- it is currently unknown. Both, we think in terms of our association, Reformed Baptist Network, all that God is doing there, continue to pray for that work. But even more specifically, what about this church, this morning, this very moment? What are you doing to stir up your affections for the nations? Meditating on John 10.16 is a good place to start. The work of God in the world cannot fail. Christ has said plainly that he is at work to bring in his people that are currently scattered through all the world. So let's trust the Lord and go. Second, if you belong to Jesus, said this already, it bears repeating, you will never perish. No one can take you from him. Because no one can take his life from him, and so no one can take your life from him. We are easily misled and beguiled. We are weak. Jesus says that he, com- he came to give us eternal life. We sing of this when we sing the song, Sovereign Grace or Sin Abounding. The verse goes, What from Christ that soul can sever, bound by everlasting bands? Once in Him, in Him forever, thus the eternal covenant stands. None shall take thee from the strength of Israel's hands. Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Are you fearful of being lost? If you're one of his, don't be afraid. God is greater than all. He and the Son are one. He has given you into the Son's hand, and so no one can snatch you out of the Son's hand because no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. No matter how dark things may seem, God has not abandoned you, and he never will. Thirdly and lastly, we need to answer the question, who is Jesus? We noted at the beginning of the sermon there are a lot of different answers that we might give. Do you recall verses 19 and 21 of John 10? Remember, Jesus has made an astounding claim to be the Davidic king who is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the royal divine shepherd in Ezekiel 34 who will unite all of God's people. And to this, the Jews say, well, some of them say, he's crazy. He has a demon. But others, with the events of chapter 9 still fresh in their minds, say, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So who do you say that he is? Is he the devil? Is he crazy? Or is he something else? While it's not completely original to him, C.S. Lewis um, sort of famously um, spoke about this trilemma. You know, the liar, lunatic, or lord. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. And so, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? My prayer is that each of us can say without hesitation that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. He is the Good Shepherd. He is our Shepherd. Would you pray with me? O Lord Jesus, take your word, we beg, and plant it deep within our hearts. Would that much fruit be born in our midst this morning because of your word? Would you help us to see your goodness? Help us to see you as the only worthy shepherd of the sheep who knows his sheep and laid his life down for them that he might take it up again in glory. Help us to see the impossibility of ever being lost if we have been placed in your hand. And help us to go out into the world with confidence that you will bring your scattered sheep into your flock. Use us, O Lord, to bring many sons and daughters to God. Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd we shall not want. You make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You restore our souls. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. 
Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you, Christ, are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil. Our cups overflow. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. And we shall dwell in the house of the triune God forever. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.